0: Well, good morning. Go ahead, and take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 18. We'll continue this morning our brief examination of a various saying of Jesus from each chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning in John 13 all the way through John 21. You know, all of the Bible is historical, with the exception of the things that are clearly, you know, prophetic for the future. When we look at the Word of God, we read the narratives and the things that have uh, transpired, understanding that they're fully historical events. That's what I mean by the Word of God is historical. They transpired. They actually happened. In when we, when we go to the Word of God, we, we need to understand that. There are some passages of Scripture, when we go to them, they almost come alive, Sometimes the historical settings of Scripture more teach, guide. You know, they might not be so um, picturesque, if that's the way you want to put it. And sometimes we look at this historical document, and again, don't hear me say it's just a historical document. It's not, okay? It is the self-revelation of the God of the universe to mankind that we might know Him. But it is very much a historical document. And sometimes we look at that document. In the picture of that historical setting and situation literally comes alive. And the Sunday that we regard as Palm Sunday is one of those days. It's one of those historical settings where you can literally almost just see the scene that is overtaking Jerusalem at the Passover. And so I want to travel back there first this morning. I want to travel back to that scene. It's Sunday, and the stage is being set. We read this passage, it's recorded for us in each of our Gospels, but we read it from John's Gospel this morning, but it's Sunday, and the the stage is being set. The crowd is in hysteria, and the scene that is unfolding is unlike anything that has been seen before or seen since. These crowds have gathered with great joy and with great zeal. And the Bible tells us they're waving their palm branches in the air. And they're loudly praising and they're loudly proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Save us now, God, is their proclamation. Their praise and their worship is a a recognition fit for a king. A Messiah who is sure to bring victory to the crowds. These people, they sought a king. But the primary king they sought was one who would free them from the political oppression of the Roman government. Let's fast forward three days. It's now Wednesday. Another scene, very clear and vivid. One of the twelve, Judas Iscariot he is named, driven by what would account to be about four months worth of wages. Thirty pieces of silver. This is all he would be compensated. It's is looking for a way to fulfill the request of the religious leaders for someone to hand over Jesus to them. That they might arrest him. Judas, driven by his greed and his lust of the flesh and his pride of life, betrayed Jesus. The plan was set in motion on Wednesday to betray Jesus. Two more days later, it's now Friday, and one of Jesus' most intimate friends, his closest of companions, who previously went as far as to rebuff Jesus' insistence of dying for the sake of redeeming sinful man. This same man who on this same night of Friday, in his zeal for Jesus, he responds to physically harming a servant of the high priest to protect Jesus. This same night, just a couple hours later, this very man will deny that he even knew Jesus at all. Peter, one of Jesus' inner three, Peter, James, and John, he knew Jesus unlike anyone else. He sought Jesus to be his earthly comfort and his earthly peace, to be the means by which all that Peter desired would come to fruition. Peter's heart and his affections were set not as much on Jesus as they were what Jesus could do in bringing about the promotion of earthly things. So much so that in his interactions with Jesus, Jesus would actually have to rebuke him. And Jesus would tell the disciples in, in one account that his, his time was coming, his, his hour was drawing near. And, 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 and Peter says to Jesus, you'll never die, Jesus. And Peter says, get behind, or Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Your affections, Peter, are for the things of the earth, not the things of the next life. Not for the things of eternity. Five days. Five days was all it took. And just in looking at these few days, we were able to examine and see together some folks who had an understanding, right, wrong, or indifferent, of who Jesus was And what Jesus' purpose was. And this morning we will see some more individuals. We'll be introduced to some more people who seek Jesus. And they seek him for even another reason than we have already examined. He wasn't their political savior. He was not their means to financial peace. Neither was he their means to earthly peace. In fact, Jesus was the opposite of all of those things of these men that we'll look at who sought him. He didn't come to overthrow the political system any more than uh, he came to overthrow the religious abuse. Excuse me. He did not come to overthrow the political system uh, for the crowds who praised him as he came into Jerusalem. But when he came, he came as a threat to the religious system of those who were abusing and manipulating the people for their advantages. These men who seek him, he didn't come to bring these men financial peace. In fact, he was the opposite. He was a, a threat to their financial system that allowed them to hold the people hostage in the name of their need to be reconciled to God. He didn't come to bring these same men who are seeking him that we'll see together earthly peace or comfort. In fact, his message of a heavenly kingdom was a threat to their ability to keep focused on the here and the now and he was calling them to something greater than the here and the now and in John chapter 18 verse 1 we're going to read down through verse 11 we read this beginning in verse 1 when Jesus had spoken these words so again he's been teaching and walking with his disciples when he's spoken these words he went out with the disciples across the brook kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered now Judas who betrayed him also knew that place for Jesus Jesus often met there with his disciples Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, these men that we were just introduced to, they seek Jesus for a different reason than the few examples or illustrations that we started with. The reality is these men sought Jesus because he was a threat to them. And the truth today is that Jesus is a threat to us. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I don't know if you've ever viewed Jesus as a a threat to you, but he is. And because he is a threat to all of us, we must consider this morning our motivations for seeking Jesus. Now, Jesus absolutely is worthy to be sought, but we must be sure that we seek Jesus for the right reasons. And so as we set out to examine this question that Jesus asked whom do you seek I just want to say as we begin we're asking ourselves this question this morning whom do we seek whom do you seek when you think of Jesus who or what is it that you're seeking when you think of Jesus and to try to shape how we should answer the question Maybe not how we actually do answer the question, but to shape how we should answer this question, I want to make four observations about who Jesus is that help us to rightly seek the Jesus of Scripture, the God of the Bible. And so the first observation we have to make about Jesus, and as I always say, this is not exhaustive of all that Jesus is, okay? This is just a few observations we see in our passage this morning. Number one, I want you to see this about Jesus when we consider whom we seek. Jesus is sovereign. Notice verse 4, then Jesus, knowing, so he knew all that was going to happen to him. Bible tells us, he come forward, they're in the garden, he come forward and he says to them, whom do you seek? Here's our, our setting, here's our backdrop. And I trust, I, I pray this morning we understand Jesus is sovereignly over all things. He knows all things, and he's in control of all things. People ought to seek him because of this. Sovereignty is defined as supreme power or authority by dictionary.com. Sovereignty is supreme power or authority. This means that Jesus being sovereign is it saying that Jesus is powerful over all things. And being the supreme power, he could have changed the events of the fateful night. He could have avoided the garden where Judas knew they would be located. He could have chosen, as we'll see in a few moments, to not have engaged with the soldiers and the chief priests. He could have fled the garden when he no doubt seen and heard approximately 600 men coming to the garden of Gethsemane to apprehend him. Again, we read in verse 4 that he knew not just all things, but specifically, he knew all that would happen to him. He was fully aware of the events that would unfold in just a few short hours. His arrest, his trial, his beatings, his mockings, the scorning, the crucifixion, and ultimately his death. All of these realities were known by Jesus before they were physically experienced by Jesus. And because he's sovereign, he could have changed it. But he didn't. But he didn't. See, the fact that he's all-powerful and has all-authority... Is exactly why he is a threat to those who sought him in the garden. Because he is sovereign over all things. And because he is sovereign over all things, you see, Jesus was unlike anyone else in that he could not be controlled, he could not be manipulated. There was nothing that they could do to Jesus that could stop impacting the fact that as we saw in John chapter 12 at the triumphal entry, the religious leaders looked at one another and said, we're not gaining anything. Everybody is going after him. They're recognizing, they're recognizing that we're taking advantage of them. We're extorting them. We're using the, the sacrificial system whereby God has given to his people that they might be made right with him by faith through their sacrifices. We're taking advantage of people. We're getting ahead. Jesus was a threat to all of that. And they couldn't manipulate him. And the crowds we saw, they went after Jesus. And even in his sovereignty, he willingly submitted himself to all of the things that he knew were set to happen. I mean, can you imagine knowing the events, knowing the outcome of them, and then when the men approach you in the garden? Like, don't, don't miss what happens here. Knowing all that would happen to him, it says, he came forward and said to them. Again, it's believed that there's as many as 600 soldiers who are coming with the religious leaders to arrest Jesus. That's quite a scene, isn't it? And Jesus, knowing all that's set to happen to him, you you see this scene where it's almost like in some way where they're at in the garden, these men can't see Jesus. And knowing all that was set to happen to him, Jesus steps out. He came forward and he said to them, whom do you seek? He engaged them. He began the conversation with these brutes that come to arrest him. It's not how we function, is it? It's not how I function. I go to great lengths to avoid any difficulty, right? I certainly could not imagine having total power and control to change a situation, to have complete authority to do something different in in what is no doubt the most difficult situation that a person could face and not enact on that power. But Jesus did not. He had the power, but he didn't use it. The power and authority of Jesus and his sovereignty are never abused to advance or to improve his circumstances Apart from whatever God's will for him was, he never changed anything for his glory, for his good, or to advance his situation. And his total authority, his sovereignty, his power over all things, I want you to understand, is a reason to seek him. But the question is how do we view the authority? You see, Jesus was sovereign, and he couldn't be manipulated, and he couldn't be bent to do what the religious leaders wanted. He was a threat to them, so they sought him so they could get rid of him. We sit in churches like ours, and we talk about the sovereignty of God. We talk about how God has complete power and authority over all things, and we hopefully we rightly recognize this. But do we come to that power and that authority thinking because he's the power, because he's the authority, ultimately if I come to him, he's just going to change my circumstances? He's going to improve my situation? He is all-powerful after all. In fact, isn't this one of the greatest indictments that the unbelieving world has of Jesus? Well, if he's all-powerful, why doesn't he change things? My fear is that often... We seek Jesus simply hoping that he will change our circumstances. Simply hoping that some aspect or area of our lives will improve will improve it will become better. Do we come to Christ? Do we seek him considering the sovereignty of God to give life? Understanding that by faith, the transaction that is received is not an improvement of your circumstances. It's literally a movement from death to life, regardless of our physical circumstances. Is the power of God to make dead things alive enough for us? Or do we need to see, do we seek the power of God in our context for our purposes? If God never changed one tiny minuscule aspect of the circumstances in your life and the only power that you ever received from God and his sovereignty was that you went from death to life, would that be enough for you? Don't get me wrong. God's power is evidenced in our lives every day. God's sovereignty to be over all things and control all things, every one of you is looking at me breathing. That is a testament to the sovereignty of God. He allowed your lungs to function when he allowed your eyes to open, when he allowed your heart to continue to beat The reality of God's power is on display in our lives every day. But the power of God, the sovereignty of God, is not as much about changing our earthly physical circumstances as it is about changing the fact that we are sinners who are dead in our sin, separated from God because of it. And in the sacrifice of Jesus and the sovereign power of God to raise Jesus from death to life has made us right with him when we believe it by faith. That's the sovereignty of God. But how often, let's be honest this morning, how often do we stop seeking Jesus when we feel as though his all-powerful nature is not to our advantage in this life? Seeking Jesus for a time, I might feel like, hey, this looks good. This might gain some notoriety. People will rally behind me because I, I'm, I say I'm a believer and, I, and I'm seeking Jesus. But what happens when seeking Jesus, the all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe, conflicts with some perception of reality that we have? What, what, what is our response then? To yield to the one whom we rightly identified as all-powerful, sovereign over all things? Or to deny his sovereignty and say, no, we know better than you do, God. So now that this conflict exists, I'm actually going to deny the fact that you're sovereign over all things and in your sovereignty worthy to be pursued over all things, and I'm going to go this way. This is common. When the sovereignty of Jesus doesn't fit our narrative, when it doesn't fit our agenda, we're going to stop pursuing Jesus. We're no longer going to seek Jesus. We're going to seek someone or something else. And so I would ask you, because I, look, in some capacity, every one of you is seeking Jesus this morning. I know that to be true because you're here. You may be, quote unquote, seeking Jesus because your spouse wants you here. You may be seeking Jesus because you want to be here You may be seeking Jesus this morning because you think he can change your circumstances. You think he can improve your situation. I'm going to assume this morning that everybody who is sitting here looking looking at me and listening to me is in some capacity seeking Jesus. And so I want to ask you this question. Do you seek Jesus because he is sovereign to his plan or because he's sovereign to yours? This is a million-dollar question. Actually, you cannot place a dollar figure on this question. It's the most important of all questions. Do you seek Jesus because he is sovereign to his plan or because he's sovereign to your plan? You see, the sovereignty of Jesus is tied to the fact that he is God in the flesh. And even at this juncture of his life, Jesus does not back down from the claim of being equal with God. And the reason for this is simple. Because he is God. I want you to know, lots of times when you work to put together a sermon and you, you, know, you, you try to come up with things maybe that are cleverly worded. That they might stick with folks a little bit better, that they might remember them. And, and when, I, when I give my points to Pastor Ernest, as he puts them into our presentation software for me, I even told him, I was like, bro, I don't know how to church it up. Like, it just, it is what it is this week, right? Like, Jesus is sovereign. Secondly, Jesus is God, and I want you to understand something. That's enough. Jesus is sovereign, and Jesus is God. I don't have to church it up. We don't have to church it up. This is what the Word of God is revealing to us this morning. When we think about whom it is that we seek. Do we seek the sovereign God of the universe that is sovereign to his plan? Do we seek God, understanding that he's sovereign, he's in control of all things, that he has plans and that he has purposes? And as we think about seeking Jesus, there is no dismissing or denying the vital fact, the vital important fact that Jesus is God. And he uses very plain, very clear language very similar language, in fact, the exact same language that his father had used previously that equates to him being equal with his father. And Jesus, again, he begins this interaction in verse 5 through the first part of verse 8 with these men in the garden by posing this question we've seen. Whom do you seek? And the response of the men who are being asked Is much like our response to Jesus today in a lot of situations and circumstances. They simply say, Jesus of Nazareth. When they're asked a second time, their response is the same. Jesus of Nazareth. And this casual approach demonstrated here is the demise of these men. And I'm not convinced that you and I the world we live in today, that people don't view Jesus just as casually as these men in the garden. Whom do you seek? When Jesus spoke to them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. They, you literally can read it as though it's just like, hey, man, we're just doing our job. We're Roman soldiers. We're here to procure this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. They knew who he was. They knew what his claims were. And I know that they knew who he was, and I know that they knew what his claims was, what his claims were throughout his earthly ministry, because Jesus says to them, "I am He." In the actual literal translation of this, it doesn't read quite as well. So, in some of our English translations, we make it read a little bit easier. Jesus literally says to them, "I am." When they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, what's the significance of that? Well, that's the same way that God appeared to or responded to Moses in Exodus chapter three when Moses is out in the wilderness tending to the flocks and he sees this bush that's on fire. And of course, I trust we're familiar. God tells Moses, I want you to go back into Egypt and I want you to free my people. Moses, well, who do I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Jesus' own interaction with the religious leaders throughout his earthly ministry. They talk about Abraham as our father, and Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He uses the same language. Jesus was once again doubling down on the reality that he was God. And we see the initial response of these men who have come into the garden. The Bible tells us that they fall back into the ground and And there's some debate as to, you know, whether or not they fell down and worshipped him because they understood him, or whether or not I I would hold the position that this is akin to what we see the response of people all throughout Scripture being when they receive like this uh, uh, divine revelation, if you will. There was this reality of the, the the response of Jesus. Equating himself with God, and there being this some form of verification, they literally were taken back. And yet, and yet, when Jesus reiterates, "I am Him, I am He, I am," what does the Bible tell us they did? They just went and arrested him. They carried on their plan and their their their, their functions. And these men, just as other times we've seen throughout the gospel, not these men in particular, but men have gathered to arrest this man they call Jesus. Only this time, as they enter into the garden, they've got him, they believe right where they want him. But I struggled this week in studying and putting this together, and I, and I used the phrase a minute ago, and I would probably continue to use the phrase, but I struggle with calling what transpired in the garden and arrest. Pastor Aaron and I were talking this week, and he was, we were talking about this reality, and he was sharing with me, and I, I hadn't seen it, but he was sharing with me, you know, there's a scene in one of the Superman movies where they put Superman in handcuffs, you know, and they arrest him, and they take him by and like, and of course, in the show, I think Aaron said, Superman even goes as far as to just go and break the cuffs, like, you know, what are we doing here, really? You didn't arrest me. That's the reality here. You see, when I think of the word arrest, these men come and they arrest Jesus in his betrayal by Judas. I think of this scene where someone's being taken against their force. Uh, Somebody who, I mean, look, let's think about it today. How do we think about it? Usually people who get arrested have what? They've broken a law. And so they get arrested against their will, not what they want to do or be a part of. And not that Jesus wanted to be crucified, but in his sovereignty, could have changed the events of the evening. But he didn't. And he allowed them to take him. They did not arrest him against his will. And I I just find this scene quite comical, right? Is they come in and they've got their, their clubs and they've got their weapons and their torches and they're ready to take Jesus by force. That's ridiculous. And it matters because this all goes towards understanding all we've seen as we've walked through John's gospel starting in 13, as Jesus keeps talking about doing my Father's will, doing my Father's will, bringing my Father glory, bringing my Father glory. This is why Jesus allows the men in the garden to apprehend him, because he's committed to doing his Father's will for his Father's glory. Men arresting Jesus, they came in and in their interaction with him, in some capacity, I have to believe, they were aware of the fact that he was divine. And yet they still thought they had the authority to change the situation. They thought they were the authority in the situation rather Their weapons, their torches, anything they had at their disposal, it was no match for the power of the divine Son of God. And yet, as God, Jesus willingly surrenders. Whom do you seek? Like the men here, do you seek a Jesus who you control and believe that you have authority over? That you can control and manipulate to advance your purposes or your ideas, your goals, whatever? Or do you seek the Jesus of Scripture, the God-man, God in the flesh, who's fully sovereign? Do you live under his authority, or do you operate underneath your own? Whom do you seek? You see, seeking Jesus is not just about the fact that he's God and that he's sovereign over all things. Jesus lived his life as God for the purpose of fulfilling the word of God to the glory of his Father. And one of the ways that he does this, we see here in verses 8, the second part of verse 8 and verse 9, is he does this as the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. He says, I told you I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. And then John tells us this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you've given me, I have lost not one. So Jesus demonstrates that his care and concern is not only for his father's will, but also for those that the father has given to him. And so as a shepherd does to his sheep, Jesus acts on their behalf. Jesus cares for his sheep and he protects them. He desires that the mob of men, the soldiers, would allow the men to go because really Jesus is the one whom they desire and John is clear that this is to fulfill what was written that Jesus would not lose any of those God had given to him and this is not just about the men not being harmed physically in this scene in the garden but it's ultimately about the willingness of Jesus to sacrifice himself for the 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 the, the flock, the sheep as a whole, to create this flock. John would tell us, Jesus himself would say, the good shepherd lays down his life in order to protect the sheep. And that's the reality of this situation. Jesus himself said it was the shepherd who stays even in the midst, the true shepherd, stays even in the midst of wolves. He said the hired hand scatters at the sight of trouble. And you can almost see this picture being built, right? Like where, when you think about the things that Jesus taught, when he talked about being the good shepherd and and caring for the sheep and not fleeing at the sight of trouble, like that's literally the scene. I mean, trouble is at hand for Jesus, the shepherd in the garden. And he doesn't flee, just as he said the good shepherd would not do. The sovereign God of the universe cares for the sheep. So he stays And this care and concern of the shepherd for his sheep is ultimately, again, about their spiritual well-being. If these men are procured with Jesus, and in those moments, in those settings, not standing treated to the same thing Jesus would be treated to that night, who would carry on the gospel message. Jesus had raised up these men for the purpose of sending them out to continue to proclaim his message because from the very beginning, Jesus knew what his fate was. And Jesus knew if people followed him solely based on what he could do uh, for them, and, and, and they would fall away when he was crucified. Many people had come and claimed to be the Messiah. Many people had come and claimed to be the one whom God had talked about. Jesus was actually the one whom the Father had prophesied. Ultimately, we know this is about the spiritual well-being of the disciples and then ultimately the, all of the sheep, the church as a whole. It's not just about physical well-being, keeping the sheep is when Jesus says he's not going to lose any that the Father has given to him. This is not a reference to physical well-being, not in the garden, or not in general. Because as we've talked about since we've started John, how did every one of the disciples' lives end? In martyrdom, with the exception of John, only because he didn't die when they tried to martyr him. And so Jesus is the good shepherd was not primarily concerned throughout the scope of humanity for just the physical well-being. The great shepherd cared more about the spiritual well-being. Who do you seek this morning? A Jesus who exists simply to meet your physical needs, to help you achieve whatever physical goal you long for, to reach whatever status you aspire to have, Or do you seek Jesus because he's the good shepherd who laid down his life to care for your soul? To redeem you from the penalty and the bondage that sin holds so tightly on mankind. Do you seek him because as the good shepherd, he did not flee, he did not scatter in the midst of wolves, but he remained true and he remained faithful to the point of his death. Do you understand this morning And do you know, do you seek the Jesus who cares more for your spiritual well-being than he does your physical well-being? Whom do you seek? All of these reasons we've seen are reasons to seek Jesus. And they lead us to a a realization that is a must as we seek him. And whether or not we believe this last reality is going to shape how we deal with everything that we've seen up to this point. Jesus did what only he could do in the only way that it could be done in redeeming sinful man. And for this, we recognize that Jesus was and is faithful. And Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and he cut off his right ear. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath." shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? Now, there's other gospel writers who speak to the fact that Jesus, in the midst of this mob, Peter cuts off this dude's ear. And the Bible tells us Jesus reached down, he picks up this guy's ear, and he just touches the side of his head, the right side where his ear had been cut off, and he heals the man. And he says, you know, I could put a stop to all of this. I could dispatch legions of angels right now. And John doesn't give us all of those details. John simply records for us the interaction where Jesus once again rebukes Peter. Once again rebukes Peter's desire to operate and work in such a way That his earthly comfort and and desires and needs would be met as long as Jesus is with me, I got what I've need. It's kind of Peter's mentality, and he's rebuked yet again. Why? Because Jesus is faithful. Can you again? Can you imagine the scene? There are men everywhere. Right, they've come to arrest Jesus. He has proclaimed himself to be God once again. And as they move to arrest him, Peter responds in violence. And it's not the crowd that Jesus rebukes. It's not the ones who've come to arrest him. It's Peter, like his best friend. And he looks at Peter and he says, we're not going to do that because I have come to drink the cup that my father has for me. And this was the task that was at hand for Jesus. Jesus is clear in the midst of all of this scene and all of this chaos that he understands his mission. He understands. And in his understanding, his response to Peter, he talks about the cup of his father. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? You see, Jesus was the one whom would drink the cup of God's wrath once and for all for the purpose of redemption. And as we've seen over the course of the last few weeks, this was the ultimate purpose of Christ's coming, that the Father would be glorified by the faithfulness of his son Jesus to fulfill the purpose of redeeming sinful mankind. In the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath, it actually was used in two, two ways in the Old Testament. When we talk about God's cup, it was a good thing. As, and you think of David in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. Okay, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So we have this, this picture of God's cup, of blessings overflowing. But more prominently in the Old Testament, when, we, look, when we, we read of the cup of God, it's in reference to the wrath of God in this, this picture of a, of a cup. For example, in Isaiah 51, 17, God calls the nation, again, they're in captivity. They've been hauled away for their rebellion and their sin of idolatry. And God calls the nation to awake, having now experienced the wrath of God being emptied out to the dredge or to its fullest extent of being poured out. And here we see this same reality. Jesus is communicating to Peter, that he has to take the full extent of God's wrath. He has to take the full extent of the plan of the Father to fulfill what it is that he had set out to fulfill. There would be no other means of satisfying the wrath of God once and for all. Not before then, not then, and not since then. We know That Jesus faithfully drank the cup. I think of Leviticus chapter 16 in the Old Testament. Where Moses in writing he records for us the events of the day of atonement. And God instructs Moses to instruct Aaron the high priest. On how to atone for the sins of the people. This is how to make payment for them to the satisfaction of the demands of God. This is what God demands in order for sin to be atoned for or for God to be satisfied, for a payment to be made that's adequate. And the shedding of blood was necessary for this to take place. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no appeasement of the wrath of God without the shedding of blood. But you know, there's another reality, another aspect of the Day of Atonement. It's the reality of the scapegoat. Many of you have used this word... You've talked about a scapegoat. You've maybe read about it in a book or seen it on a movie. Did you know that the idea of a scapegoat has biblical origins? You see, the scapegoat was also an integral part of the Day of Atonement as outlined in Leviticus chapter 16. You see, the scapegoat was this goat that Aaron, after performing, he would sprinkle the blood and he would atone for the people's sins, He would take both of his hands and he would place them on the head of this goat. And in placing both of his hands on the head of this goat, he would be symbolizing the guilt of the people being transferred from the people to the goat. And then the goat would be sent out into the wilderness. Again, symbolizing for the people that their sins had been removed. That they were gone. That they were sent out in the wilderness to never be recognized or dealt with again. Their sins were no longer over them. They were gone. We think about our sins. The psalmist tells us that in Jesus, those who believe in Jesus, their sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. You know how far that is? Me neither. That's the point. In Christ. Your sins are not merely placed upon the head of a goat and sent into the wilderness so that 12 months later, on the 10th day of the 7th month, we could once again offer uh, atonement. We could shed blood of bulls and goats, and then we could transfer the guilt of the people onto the goat and send him out into the wilderness. No, in Jesus, once and for all, drinking the cup of the Father, atoned for sin, period. We're done. That's it. Jesus was not only the blood that was spilled to make atonement, but our guilt was placed upon him when the atonement was made. Whom do you seek? Do you seek a Jesus that has made atonement for sin? That has bore your sin as far as the east is from the west, whereby God looks upon you and sees somebody who's not guilty? Or do you seek a Jesus who makes you feel better, makes you more comfortable? Let's be honest, who maybe is just a means to an end? Well, it looks good if I identify with Jesus. I might get this opportunity if I identify with Jesus. Whom do you seek? Because if you seek Jesus as anything other than the faithful shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, then you, like many others as we have seen today, are seeking the wrong Jesus. And if you are seeking the wrong Jesus, you are dead in your sins. They have not been atoned for and your guilt has not been spread as far as the east is from the west. This reality of The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. Jesus is not simply a means to an end. Jesus is not simply here to to make us feel better. Pastor Aaron, in in our Sunday school hour, he's been talking about how to study the Bible. And this week we got to talk a lot about uh, just interpreting Scripture in light of the right context. People seek Jesus for comfort because we live in a world where the Bible is taken out of context every single day. We seek Jesus because of whatever fanciful reason we've seen on a coffee cup or a t-shirt. And when we don't seek the Jesus of Scripture and life happens and our sovereignty is threatened, we're like, now we're done with this Jesus. Jesus. Or even worse, we, 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 we walk away from this Jesus and then we shed negative light on Jesus, not because he wasn't faithful, but because he didn't do what we thought he should do. He wasn't who we thought he should be. And if you seek Jesus as anything other than the faithful shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep for the purpose of your redemption, at some point you are going to stop seeking Jesus. Because at some point, Jesus will no longer be advantageous to whatever it is you're seeking him. Whether or not we're seeking the Jesus of Scripture is, I cannot put into words. I cannot quantify for you this morning how vitally important it is to know that we seek the God of the Bible. Because Jesus was not faithful to make you better. He was not faithful to make you smarter, to change your earthly circumstances, or to be viewed as a token. Jesus was faithful to redeem you from your sin. Whom do you seek? This is the question Jesus asked the men in the garden. And this is a question we must ask ourselves today. Do we seek Jesus, as he is to be sought, because if we don't, we are not seeking the Jesus of the Bible. Whom do you seek? Let's pray. Father, the privilege of knowing you through Jesus is the greatest of privileges Father, to look unto Jesus and see one who was perfectly, faithfully obedient, even unto death, death on a cross, your word tells us. As he looked at Peter and he said, Am I not to drink the cup that my Father has given to me? Father, this, is, this matter is of such, we can't quantify the importance of it. jesus didn't die to be a feel-good story jesus didn't die to change our circumstances or to make us feel better or to make us be better god jesus died for the purpose of redeeming sinful man he died because he was perfectly faithfully obedient to your will for his life if there was anybody, God, who could ever make a claim to saying, I don't deserve this or I don't deserve that and these circumstances could or should be different, it was Jesus. And yet he persevered. He stayed the course. He laid down his life. He was faithfully obedient, God, to bring you glory and to imagine that we today get to be the benefactors of him pursuing your glory. But to imagine, God, that even as much as we may say we know or understand that we have that privilege and we get to be that benefactor. God, I pray this morning that you would stir our hearts, that we would be honest if we say we understand what's at stake and we say we understand what has been accomplished as Jesus was faithful to your will, I pray, God, that you would impress upon our hearts the reality of knowing that we must seek Jesus rightly. We can't view Jesus casually. He's not one of the guys. You're not the big man upstairs the holy God of the universe, who is offended by the presence of sin, so much so that you punished it in Jesus. And Jesus is not to be looked at as a means to an end, as a buddy, as simply someone who can change our circumstances. Yes, Jesus is a friend. And yes, oftentimes, as people submit to Jesus and and the Holy Spirit works in their lives, their lives do change. But oftentimes, God, our circumstances don't change. And our lives on this earth may not improve. Do we still seek Jesus for who he is? Help us to be honest today, God. Help us to ask ourselves The question, whom do we seek? And help us, God, to be willing to be honest about the answer. And then work in our hearts. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that if we recognize that we're not pursuing Jesus as scripture would call us to or that we're not pursuing him for who he is and we've been pursuing him as something else, that repentance and faith is the means of restoration. So impress our hearts, impress upon our hearts today, God, whatever that need may be. Maybe today we need to repent. Maybe today we need to acknowledge that we've seen Jesus as someone who improves our circumstances and we're mad that he hasn't. Maybe we view Jesus as someone who's just going to get us out of a, a situation or he's going to get us into a situation. What happens when he doesn't? God, if we seek Jesus for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motivations, eventually we'll be like the crowds who we're going to see five days from now We'll
1: demand
0: that the Roman soldiers crucify him. And we'll walk away. And we'll be left broken in the sin and the despair that ultimately we seek Jesus to free us from. Work in our hearts today, God, for our good, but more importantly, for your glory. Help us today to seek Jesus and be glorified by it, in Jesus' name.